And Father, thank you for this morning, um, that because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the rock upon which we stand, whose kingdom we have been transferred into by grace, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that we stand upon a rock that cannot be shaken. We have been brought into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And Lord, your word clearly says that everything that else that can be shaken will be shaken, so that that which cannot be shaken will remain. And uh, Father, as we you know, found out yesterday with the, the war now going on and, uh, with Israel and Hamas, and we think of Russia and Ukraine and all the other things all over the world, we, with grateful hearts, turn our eyes towards heaven this morning and thank you that by grace we've been brought into your kingdom that cannot be moved, that cannot be shaken. And we say, Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in our lives, in the world. Um, your word says the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, the Lord lifts his voice and the earth melts. Your word is steadfast and certain. And it's to your word that we want to look this morning. So Father, I pray that you would give us, by your word and by your spirit, mighty hearts that also would not be shaken. Thank you for the time that we have together this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Good to see you guys. Have a seat. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8 is where we will be this morning. Let me jump right in and read Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's word. Pray me one more time. Father, thanks again for this morning. Please open the eyes of our heart that we can see wonderful things from your word. We need your help and we trust you and the power of your word and the power of your spirit to renew our minds and thus transform us and help us to live lives of continual worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, God's presence is the answer to everything. Um, the Bible speaks of God's presence in two general categories. There's God's omnipresence, which means that he is everywhere and all the time. He sees every sparrow that falls, and he sees our actions, and he knows our motives. But there's also what the Bible refers to as his glorious presence, or sometimes referred to as his Shekinah glory. It's the presence that uh, the prophet Isaiah met in Isaiah chapter 6 when he cried out, Woe is me, I am undone, which is Hebrew for, ah! like he was really... He was really terrified in God's presence. It's the presence that Moses encountered 
on Mount Sinai when he came down and his face was glowing thereafter. Um, and as God sought to call a people to himself throughout the history of redemption, he set parameters and guidelines on how to approach his presence. And the primary way that he did this was through the giving of the tabernacle to Moses as he traveled with the Israelites to the promised land. And later on, uh, that tabernacle um, came through the establishment of the temple in Jerusalem that Solomon built. And his glorious presence, the Shekinah glory, dwelt in the inner part of the temple known as the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest would enter there once a year on the Day of Atonement with the blood of a lamb, a pure and spotless lamb as a sacrifice for a, as a substitute and as a propitiation for the sins of the people. Now after Solomon, the kingdom was divided into the northern kingdom and into the southern kingdom because of the rebellion of the people and partly because of what David had done in sinning with Bathsheba. Um, both of these nations, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, continued to rebel even though, and, and God eventually punished them after warning them again and again to honor his law, um, but he eventually sent both nations into exile. The northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom of Judah was taken captive a little while later by the Babylonians. However, even while the nation was in captivity and even before God sent, sent them into captivity, God would send prophets to warn the people, but also to promise them that one day they were going to return to the land because God is always faithful to his people um, and he always honors his promises even when, people are, are, even when his people are at times faithless to them. Now, in the story of the Old Testament, this is where the books of Nehemiah and Ezra come in. After the nations had been taken into exile, Nehemiah was called by God to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem, starting with the wall around the city, um, which is what the book of Nehemiah is all about. Ezra was called to go back to Jerusalem and to build the nation back spiritually, starting with the construction of of a new temple, which is what the book of Ezra is primarily all about. However, even after the nation had been taken into captivity because of their rebellion, and even though God had brought them back, and even though he'd raised up Nehemiah and Ezra to call the people to rebuild the wall and to rebuild the temple, um, the people uh, of God didn't follow through as, as they should have. Um, and what's interesting about the stories of Nehemiah and Ezra is that in Nehemiah, the opposition to God's people primarily comes from without. There were these two bad dudes named Sanballat and Tobiah, and they're constantly causing trouble for God's people as they sought to rebuild the wall. But in the story of Ezra, as he seeks to restore the people spiritually and to rebuild, and to rebuild the, the, the temple, the primary opposition doesn't come from without, but it comes from within. Is that the people of God, even though, all the, all, even though they'd been through all that they'd been through and been punished by God, they become apathetic meaning that they know that there's more to do, but they decided to prioritize other things instead. And this is where the prophets, and again, I'm giving you just kind of a broad overview of the Old Testament here, and this then is where the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi come in. Anybody read them this past week? Everybody's favorite books, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Um, but Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they come in after the, the, the project of rebuilding the temple under Ezra. It had stalled because of this apathy in the people. They just became sluggish. 
and prioritize other things. And God raises up these prophets to stir the people once again to action to finish uh, what God had called them what God had called them to start. What's happening? Is there, is that a phone or? Okay, Spotify's coming out. Of the, <laughs> Spotify's coming out of the projector. It's a good song. I, I don't. It's still going. Sorry, I really want to muscle through this right now, but I think I'm just going to wait till we can. There we go. Okay. Well, that was new. Um, <laughs> anyway, back at Haggai. Um, <laughs> so God raises up the prophet Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, to stir the people to action because they had stalled. Because they had stalled and become apathetic in the work that God had given them to do. It's summed up well. Let me read a few verses from Haggai chapter 1. Um, the prophet Haggai, <coughs> speaking the word of the Lord to the people, he says to them, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses, which paneled houses are like, they're really nice houses that they built for themselves. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house, meaning the Lord's house, the temple, lies in ruins? He says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In other words, think about what you're doing. You've become sluggish um, in this project, comfort and ease had made them move aside from what God had called them, what God had called them to do. The next verse, Haggai chapter one verse six says, "You have sown much and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages." To, does so to put them into a bag with holes. Now here's the irony, okay, if you're, if you're following me here. The people of God had begun to choose comfort and ease in building their nice paneled houses rather than prioritizing the work of God to rebuilding the temple where his presence dwelt. And again, the presence of God is the answer to everything. That's what they ultimately needed. But in the midst of seeking all this comfort, he, they, they still weren't satisfied. That's what verse 6 means. It's like you've harvested, but you don't have anything. You, you seek to make a lot of money, but you put it into a bag with holes. In other words, in the midst of all your pursuit of comfort and ease and pleasure, it's not satisfying your heart. And again, the reason for that is, is that the only thing that can satisfy the human heart is the presence of God. We were made to worship him, as we talked about, as we talked about last week. This is why Jesus prays. In John chapter 17, at the beginning of the, the prayer, before he, right before he goes to the cross, he says, Father, I pray that they may have eternal life, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. At the end of the prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. Now here's the thing, and why, you're like, Eric, I thought we were in Romans 12, why all that Old Testament um, storyline and, and narrative is because here's the point is that the answer to everything is God's presence. God's presence dwells in the temple. But since the day of Pentecost, after Jesus ascended and he poured out his spirit, God's presence doesn't dwell in a building or in a place, but in a people. That's where his presence lies. 
And those people are the church. It's you and I. It is people who have been redeemed, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are the new temple of the living God in which his presence dwells. The Bible does talk at times about individual believers and our bodies being temples of the Holy Spirit, but the primary, primary usage of the idea of the temple in the New Testament is actually us corporately, as the local church where God's Spirit dwells. Paul, in Ephesians, sums this up well. He says, for though, he says, or he says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And listen, in whom, in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Did you know that about us? Did you know that that's what the church is? That we are a temple of the living God. Not a place, not this building. Not any building. Not just a city. One place in the world. But God's presence dwelling in his, in his people. Now I say all that to understand all this theologically because as awesome as that is that God has divinely appointed the church, his people, in this era in which we live, to have his presence dwell in us, to be this new temple, as strange as it may seem, despite all the grace that he's shown us in the new covenant, many people, many Christians, just like in Ezra's and Haggai and Zechariah's and in Malachi's day, many Christians remain apathetic and sluggish and prioritize other things when it comes to the centrality of the local church. The people of God, where God's spirit dwells. Now to be certain, <coughs> um, <coughs> Jesus Christ said very clearly that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. That is a promise and as I said earlier, God is always faithful to keep his promises. And Jesus Christ, he is the better Ezra, he's the better Haggai, he's the better Zechariah, he's the better Malachi, and he will see the project through until the end. He is the chief architect, and he will not fail. Amen? He said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And just as a little side note there, it's not that gates don't march on people, people march on gates. And that's what the church is supposed to do, this church of the living God that hosts the presence of God, going towards the darkness, taking back what the enemy has stolen through his lies and through his desire to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But anyway, here's the point. What Paul presents in this passage in Romans, we'll get back to Romans here, I promise. What Paul presents in this passage in Romans this morning is an inspired call to live as the people of God and to play the role that God has for each one of us to play in the local church. Not to be apathetic and sluggish towards what Jesus Christ is building. Again, is he ultimately the one building it? 100%. But he calls us to play a role in it. And what I want us to see very clearly in the, in the text this morning is that I think it's a lot of this idea of prioritizing the role of the church 
in our lives that is the key to our transformation. Look at the text in Romans, please. Last week, we looked at all of life, verse 1, is to be worship. If we are going to live a life of worship, verse 2, this is how it will happen. We, will not, we must not be conformed to the world, but we must be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The first thing that Paul is going to bring up then practically, and he's going to do this throughout all the rest of these, these chapters. Remember last week I said verses 1 and 2 are like a container into which he pours chapters 12 through 16. But the first thing that he brings up in verse 3 is this idea of thinking differently or renewing our minds on the place of the local church. Look at verse 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And what he's going to go on, what I read earlier in the rest of these verses, verses 4 and 5, he's not just talking, us, talking to us about thinking about ourselves individually as we so tend to do, but he's talking about thinking ourselves within, thinking about ourselves within the body of Christ. Let me... I want to try again because I want to make sure everybody's on board. I want to try to pick you up and make sure and make sure that we see this. I want you to see the link between transformation in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. What's the first thing he says that we need to renew our minds on? That's why I emphasize the word think so many times in verse 3. That's the link. We need to think differently about our place in the local church. The links being, again, I know there's one in between there, but think about it. The reason so many of us lack transformation is because we do not think rightly about the centrality of the local church. Does that make sense? Do you see where I'm getting this from? Nod your heads at me, or say amen, or say something. Do you see where I'm getting this from? I'm not trying to make this up. I'm not going to preach this morning about the centrality of the local church just because I'm a pastor. Well, he's a pastor. Of course he's going to say that. He wants everybody to be more involved and to be there and to, and to show up. That's not, that's not my heart. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And the first thing we need to think differently about is the place of the local church in each one of our lives. And I... Again, as I already kind of laid my cards on the table this morning, I, I argue that the people of God, just like back in Haggai's day, we've, we've grown apathetic. We view the church as a side hustle. We view the church as something that we will be committed to if it is convenient for us. And brother, sister, right there is the reason why our lives remain the same. And we do not see transformation. Yes, we have the Bible Yes, we have the Holy Spirit. Yes, we can pray. Those are all means of grace that God has given, and they're glorious. But all I'm saying is, not that they're not important, but that's another text, that's another sermon for another day. And most of us do tend to prioritize these things. The thing that we don't prioritize is the centrality of the local church. Is that the Spirit of God, look around you, look around, literally, move your heads, look around. Around you are your brothers and sisters in Christ. They have been saved by grace through the blood of Christ just as you have. 
And God has placed something inside of them that you need. And God has placed something inside of you that they need. And if we are, the big thing this morning as we get down, we're going to get down into some practicals and different ways that we need to think differently about some specific things within the church. But the biggest thing that I need us to see this morning is just simply that like, we need to adopt the right attitude with the way in which we approach each other. Is it the person sitting beside you to your left, your right, in front, behind you? You need them. And they need you. And until we adopt that right attitude, that the key to our transformation doesn't just lie in us, we're never going to be transformed. Are you with me? Yeah? It's so important. I, I don't, again, um, I don't know. I, I suppose this is somewhat of a subjective thing. I think, I don't, I think most people would agree, though. I, there have been uh, very affluent cultures throughout the history of the world. I mean, even Israel under Solomon was, you know, Solomon made like silver and gold as common as like straw, the Bible says. Um, Babylon was an unbelievable kingdom. I know we think America, we've got it all together, but I, I mean, there's been affluent kingdoms throughout the history of the world. However, I don't know that there's ever been a culture throughout the history of the world that has been more individualistic than ours. Individualism, it, it is literally just the air that we breathe. It's the culture every single one of us was born into. And when we think, we, even about our Christianity, we only think in terms of individual. And again, I've used this phrase. This is not a bad phrase. There's truth. It's not wrong to use this. But even the way we frame everything is our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Not, not, not wrong, but I'm saying maybe a pointer that like that's the way we frame everything. It's personal. It's about me. I've got my Bible. I've got the Holy Spirit. I can pray and I can do my little Bible studies and I can watch people online and I can go to YouTube and I can listen to podcasts and I can buy all the biblical resources and do my little Bible studies by myself and so I'm just going to grow. That's not true. Again, I'm saying the same thing different ways just to make sure I hammer it this morning before we get into the text. It's just not true, dear friend. You will not change apart from God's people within the context of the local church. He has saved you from sin and he's brought you into this. Okay? So, okay, have I, have I belabored that enough? Are you like, <laughs> You're like, yes, please move on. All right. Um, let me get into the text here. Three ways in which Paul wants us to think correctly about the local church. Number one, he wants us to think correctly about ourselves within the local church. He wants us to think correctly about ourselves within the local church. Verse three, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Don't think of yourself, so he's talking about thinking about yourself here, more highly than you ought to think, but instead to think with sober judgment. So he goes, he finishes out the verse, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So he immediately goes from thinking about ourselves, and yeah, he's talking about how you think about yourself within the context of the local church, but it's just that, within the context of the local church. That there's a measure of faith that God has assigned to each one. 
that God's assigning of, of faith to people that, to everyone who believes, that he is somehow in his sovereignty, he's over all of this. And it's given to keep us humble, and it's given to keep us from boasting, as the Bible was adamant about, especially in the New Testament, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, let him who boasts, boast in the cross of Jesus Christ alone, and for what he's done, is that if you truly understand that it's by grace, through faith, there's nothing to boast about, so don't think about yourself more highly than you ought to think. Now, there's, there's two ends of this. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but then he says, think soberly about yourself. Now, soberly doesn't mean lowly. We don't need to think less of ourself. In fact, this is, I've quoted this before, but the great C.S. Lewis quote is that humility is not thinking less of self, but it's thinking of self less. That we get to the point where, where we just we forget about ourselves and we focus on God and we, and we focus on others. Um, God's sovereignty, there at the end of verse three, in assigning to each person a measure of faith, it, that's the gospel truth that keeps us from drifting off into a sea of endless pride that surrounds us all over the place in the world. Again, last week I talked briefly about when we're not being conformed to the world, about, about how the world is trying to disciple us continually. The world would say, you're enough. The Bible says, Christ is enough. The world says, you deserve to be happy. The Bible says, only in Christ can you be happy and satisfied. The world says, follow your heart. Perhaps the worst advice in the history of mankind. The world says, follow your heart. The Bible says, Christ can give you a new heart. So, so don't think of ourselves more, more highly than we ought. Now, just a couple things. It, it, again, it's a broad statement. Don't think about yourself more highly than you ought, but to think with sober judgment. And again, when he says, think with sober judgment, I, I don't, many times people will use the word balance. And I don't, I don't really like the word balance in regards to this or many things in regards to the Christian life. Um, people talk about, about like living a balanced Christian life. I don't know that Jesus was balanced, amen? I don't think that he was. Jesus lived full on for the glory of God. I don't think balance is the right word. I don't think it's about balance. I think it's about the Bible. Thinking soberly doesn't mean thinking in a balanced way. It means thinking biblically about what the Bible says is true and what's important. Now, in regards to not thinking of ourselves too highly and to thinking soberly, here's, even though it's a broad statement, here's at least one thing that, that, that it implies. Um, the first thing would be this, is that it implies that quite possibly, as shocking as this might be to every one of us, including myself, there are going to be times when, are you ready? You're going to be wrong. Yeah. There are going to be times when you're going to be wrong. There's going to be times when I'm going to be wrong. It also implies that we are not allowed to think of ourselves within this context of the local church as if I don't need you. Or you don't need the person next to you, behind you, in front of you, around you. Can't think. That would be thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. 
And you've heard me say this before, but we so, in America, again, with our individualistic uh, mindset and worldview through which it's just the lens through which we see absolutely everything. We love the lone wolf, the lone ranger. You know, a, a whole battalion of people can't go in and get the POWs out, but Chuck Norris goes in himself, you know, and he rescues them. Or, you know, John Rambo. Or have you seen those movies? Anyway, never mind. But I'm just saying, like, like, we just love the guy that just gets, and that, those are our heroes. Those are our heroes. The guys that just get it done all by themselves. Brother, sister, that's a lie. That message is a lie. Transformation happens in community. Plain and simple. And we need to embrace what Paul is pressing here about having our minds renewed on the way that we think about the local church. And so, again, I'm going to say a lot of the same things, just different ways throughout, but let me press it really hard. This one might sting just a little bit, okay? So fair warning, brace yourself. But don't tell me that you're living a life of continual worship that is good and acceptable and perfect, and yet you're not committed to the local church. That's not a thing. It's just not a thing. Transformation happens within the community of God's people. Now hear me, not just a program, not just, not just when we have a formal Bible study. Let me say something very practically here. Is that again, the church is God's people. You are it. We are, we are it. <laughs> we are together somehow. His temple in which his spirit dwells. And again, his presence, his spirit is the answer, is the answer to everything. Um, but like here at Mercy Hill, we, we've got what we call our discipleship pathway, some formal thing. We call it big church, small church, and discipleship groups. So we kind of look at that as the highway. We have other things. We have other on-ramps to that. We've got women's ministry, men's ministry, young adults, youth group, different things like that that we do. But the primary rhythms that we try to get everybody into are big church, this, small churches, like small groups, and discipleship groups, like one-on-one or one-on-two, men with men, women, women with women, and so on. But, but, but hear me. When I'm talking about the church, my, my press here, it, it honestly isn't. It's not just, a, I want more people to sign up for small church. I want more people to sign up for discipleship groups. That's not the point. One of the things, I say it occasionally from the pulpit, but we talk about this a lot from just like a leadership perspective, is just that we want the formal ministry to lead to informal ministry. We want the, the planned ministry, big church, small church, discipleship group, men's retreats, women's fireside chats. We want the planned things to lead to unplanned things. We want when people get together in those situations to, hey, let's grab coffee next week. Hey, come over to my house. Let's you know, have dinner together. Have, have another family over, over for a meal. Get to know one another. Those things aren't just the ministry itself. That just simply primes the pump and creates opportunity for you to just simply get in proximity to God's people. And the primary work of, of building this new temple that Jesus is, is ultimately over and is, and is the chief architect of. Listen, in the Old Testament, yes, it was literally getting wood and bricks and stone and building a temple. The work in the New Testament is to build relationships, you see. It's to build relationships. But it won't just happen. And you cannot be apathetic towards it. It takes intentionality and it takes showing up again and again and again. And there will always be a temptation to, to pull back from it. 
and to not want to go there. Does that make sense? Do you see how practical and real this is? You've heard me say this before, is that Christian change, it is absolutely supernatural, but it's also not mystical or mysterious. Like, how do I change? How do I get around God's people? Get into the word. Get into prayer with his people. And allow, and allow him to change you. Um, secondly, not only do we need to think about, correctly about ourselves within the local church, but we need to think correctly about others within the local church. Verse four. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually, members of one another. A couple of observations. First of all, you were saved from sin, but you were saved into a family. You were saved into a community. Did you know that? Again, a lot of times we talk about what we were saved from, but what were we saved for? What were we saved to? One of the things is that we were saved into a community, a family, or as Paul puts it here, into, into a body. And so, if we're going to function rightly, if we're going to be transformed, if we're going to live lives of continual worship, as we talked about last week, that are honoring and glorifying to God, we need to understand what it means to be us within the context of community. It's the only way, it's the only way to rightly understand it. Here's one of the things that was implied last week, and again, I think verses 1 2, it just is to drizzle down into all the rest of the verses that follow throughout the remainder um, of, of the book, but remember last week it talked about if we're going to live lives of continual worship to offer our bodies as a living what? A living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. So just, I mean, if you've ever had one kid and they just think they're it, they're the, well, they are it, they're the only kid, they're the first one, right? But then you have another kid and all of a sudden, this is really, I, I'm going to say it. It's kind of funny. My, my, the other day, Hannah, we, we found some really old um, pictures uh, that her dad had saved from when the boys were really, were really little. And we were going through them. <laughs> it was so funny. Um, Ephraim, you know, was our firstborn. So he was it for a while until Roan came on the scene. And literally the first picture that we have of Rowan, I, I believe, I think maybe Lois Hannah's mom was holding him or something, I forget who it was, but the first picture we have of Ephraim when Rowan came into the world, literally still in the hospital, is of him just going, <laughs> like he's just, he's just like weeping, and like, um, sorry buddy, if you're here, I don't mean to embarrass you, but it, it was pretty funny. But it's kind of how, like we think it's all about us. We've been saved into community. It's not about us, it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take putting other people, other people first. Second observation, just a general one, but I think it's very much explicit here in the text. These people that you're around and this community that you've been saved into, people are not like you. What I mean is they think differently than you. They're going to have different opinions than you. They're, they're going to approach problems from a different perspective in you than, than, than you. 
And where you think, ah, this is the answer, this is what we need to do. There's going to be others that go, ah, I think this is what we need to do. They're going to be different than you. And and if I can just press this, and again, coming back to the idea of transformation and how we're changed in regards to thinking differently. Dear friend, if you want to be changed, can I just say this? It should be obvious to us, but you need different in your life. So this, and I'll just use myself for an example. The reason I am where I am in whatever problems that I'm facing is because I keep doing things the way I think they should be done. You follow? Right. So what do I need? I need another voice not, that's not mine. I need some other thoughts. I need some other gifts that aren't mine to help shape me. And the same is true of you. Different, and I'm by different here again, don't, get weird on me with this, but different in the sense of different giftings, different people are the key to your, to your transformation. And again, people are going to think about things differently than you, but as we all work together, it becomes this beautiful thing. Think about the, think about the, uh, the problem, even within our own bodies, if my face was terrified of my hand every time it approached. Right? Like I go to brush my teeth, it's like, no, uh, you know. Sorry, I know that was kind of a weird illustration, but I'm just like, think about the dysfunction. Here comes the hand again. Or if my foot was terrified of my hand, every time I went to go tie my shoe and it's, you know, moving around and like not wanting to, like it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Dear friend, you need the person, not just the person, but the people that are different than you in order to be uh, transformed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, um, again, Paul uses the same illustration of the body. Let me just read some verses quickly. It says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we, dis- we d- bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. One of the diagnostic questions that you can ask in regards to whether or not you truly understand the centrality of the local church and whether you're committed to needing other people around you that are different to speak into your life is, is number one, do, when other people are hurting, do you hurt with them? Do you truly hurt with them? And secondly, when other people are, are honored or when other people have um, good things happen in their life, and quite honestly, this might be the more difficult one for many of us, is that when good things happen to other people, do you celebrate with them? Or do you become cynical? That's, well, of course it worked out in their life, never works out in my life. This is very real, you see. This is very real. And very helpful if we lean, if we lean into it. Um, thirdly, from the text here, the reason that people are different is because God made them this way. Just another thing to keep in mind for all of us. The reason people are different is because God made them this way. Again, end of verse 3, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. End of, end of, or middle of verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Who gave the grace? God did. 
He's the one that has made people that aren't like you to help you. And he's the one that made you the way you are, different from other people, to help them. And this is where our transformation lies. Lastly, not only do we need to think differently about ourselves within the church, about others within the church, but we need to think correctly and and differently about gifts within the church. He lists these gifts here at the end, but there's a few important details that I want to point out about this, okay? Is notice, first of all, just when he goes into this list here, he says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Um, notice here that he doesn't give a gift and then he doesn't go into this exhaustive treatise on what exactly every single gift means. He just simply lists them and understands that they'll be discovered and understood as people work it out in the body. Now you can, there are other places in the scriptures that give more details to them and there's nothing wrong with studying that and there can be a little bit more that's gleaned. But my point is is that here Paul's point isn't to give this exhaustive explanation of what each one is. His point though is that these gifts are all different and that they're supposed to be in close proximity to one another. And that's how they work. Secondly, and this is very important, one of the, I would argue one of the bigger ideas than understanding precisely all the little details about what each and every gift is and, and what it means, is that it's important to understand that every gift only operates by faith. Every gift only operates by faith. This is really the point here of that little phrase at the end of verse 3, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Have you ever wondered what's the difference between a natural talent or ability and a spiritual gift? Have you ever wondered that? I've gotten that question a lot as we talk to people about spiritual gifts over the years. Here's the difference, one of the primary differences. A spiritual gift only operates by faith. Natural talents don't. They can be done just in the natural. But spiritual gifts operate by faith. And let's talk about faith for a second and what I think Paul has in mind here, not just here, but whenever he talks about it. Is faith is truly a looking away from self and looking towards God in humble, childlike dependence. That's what it is. So this whole thing about having like proud faith or whatever, that proud faith is an oxymoron. Or sometimes people say, I have great faith. I even think that phrase, ugh, makes me feel a little icky to be honest with you. You know, you remember the, the story of the Roman centurion that he, he called Jesus to, you know, heal um, one of the people in his household. And he says, no, don't, you don't even need to come under my roof. He's like, I'm not worthy. Just give the command and it'll happen. And you remember what Jesus said? Now, Jesus said about him, he said, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. But notice, Jesus was the one saying, about the, about, saying that about this guy. It wasn't this guy saying it about himself. And so when you see people boasting that they have great faith, I think that's a sign that they don't get it. And again, do you see how this is important to the operation of gifts and, and, and being around each other and creating a culture of grace within a local church? Is that the point here is not that we all run around, well, I've got this gift and I can prophesy and I, I'm good at serving and I can teach and I can exhort and I can give and I can lead and I, 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 I show mercy. No, 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 faith is just, it, it, it implies humility. It implies looking away from self and looking towards Christ. Again, please hear me. I can can be as proud as anyone. (laughs) I mean, in the flesh, in the old man, I can be as proud 
as anyone. But I think all of us know that in regards to any of our gifts, and so for me on a Sunday morning here teaching, I'm not up here just depending on my own words and my own you know, little sermon notes, my own little outline that I've put together. I'm trying ever since to look away from self and say, dear Jesus, please help. Please let your word not just come with words, but with power and with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction of sin. And no matter what your gift is, that's the way that we're to operate, brother and sister. In humble dependence upon Christ um, and upon what only he can do. Also, notice here that he says, there's two places in Verse 3, the very first line, and also in the middle of verse 6. In verse 3, at the beginning, he says, For by the grace given to me, and then look at the beginning of verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Now, those two little phrases are repeated, and I think we're we're supposed to see them. The grace that he's specifically talking about here is the grace of these gifts, these, they're, they're, it's literally grace gifts is what is what they is how it would literally translate. Those are the specific. That's the specific grace that he that he has in mind here. But notice that it's grace given to us. But I really want us to get this: is that the grace given to you isn't just for you. The grace given to me isn't just for me. It's for others. Do you see that? Paul says in verse 3, for by the grace given to me, meaning as an apostle, I say to every one of you, apostleship being one of his gifts. He he says this even more explicitly in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now here's the point. Do you, even, do you have a grid? Do you have an understanding that the grace given to you isn't just grace for you? The grace given to you is supposed to come through you to others. See, it doesn't stop with us. It's supposed to flow through us to the church around us and to the people, and to the people um, that need it. Um, we'll spend a little bit of time here on these gifts, I'll just unpack them quickly. The first one um, is probably the one I'll spend the most time on, just because it's usually the one that people have the most questions about. But he says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, important detail here, okay? The first one being is that where he says, in proportion to our faith, that little word, our, um, uh, it's the definitive article, and it's our, you can kind of get it from that, but it would better be translated the. So it should say, if prophecy in proportion to the faith, to the faith. The, the, the point being is that when he's talking about prophecy here, he's talking about the faith as a whole of like the whole of Christianity. Like we'll refer to the Christian teaching as the faith. And his point is, is that nobody can prophesy anything that is in opposition to the scriptures. Now very quickly, I'm going to do a quick rundown on prophecy just because, again, this is one that um, usually gets the most questions. There's generally speaking four categories in regards to prophecy and how um, different people um, understand the way in which it works in our world. Um, Let me define it first. In, In terms of prophecy, what I would argue is that it's not just foretelling, although there is some of that at times. It's mainly forthtelling. 
So, so for example, look at the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi that I mentioned earlier. There was a problem in the people of God, and the prophets brought a what I would call a now, a now word to the people. Now, this wasn't something that they made up. They, they, could, they could look back at the Pentateuch. They could look back at the law, the word of God, and all that God had given and say, hey, we, we need to build the temple. We need to keep his commands. We need to, we need to do this. But the people have grown sluggish. But they, God raised them up with a nowness to their message to call them to act. That's what I would argue the gift of prophecy primarily is. It stirs the people of God to action and to work. Now, in regards to the gift of prophecy, four general categories, and I just run through these because I do think it's somewhat applicable in our world, especially with all the false teaching and stuff that's out there. The first category is there are people who say that prophecy is as authoritative as Scripture. Let's put a big fat X through that one, okay? That's absolutely not true. If you, I'll, I'll hear people all the time say, well, this guy prophesied, or this guy prophesied, so it's going to come true. I mean, one of the things just to, and I, I'm going to say it just because uh, if, if you've ever turned on the TV in the last three or four years, you'll have seen it. But there's been guys all day long prophesying that Trump was going to become president again and that he really won the election and blah, 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 blah. Um, they were wrong. <laughs> wasn't true. Just because they prophesied didn't mean that it, that, that, that it came true, okay? And we should also... We should also not take anyone's prophecy that they quote-unquote have for us uh, as something that is authoritative with Scripture. We test it with Scripture. The second category of people who isn't say that it's authoritative like Scripture, but they act like it's authoritative like Scripture. They won't say that it's on the same level of Scripture, but they kind of act like it is, and they run their whole lives around it. I would also put a big fat X through that one. Let's not, let's not do that. Let's test everything. Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is very clear. It says, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test everything, hold on to the good. Very straightforward, very clear, when you hold the word of God in its place. The third category is probably the category that I would fall into the most. It's that there are people who think that prophecy, in the sense of what Paul is talking about here and in several other places in the scriptures, he's speaking of something less than being authoritative like scripture. He's just simply speaking of a a, a now word that's derived from the written word, the living word of God that is authoritative. Uh, Just a now word that stirs the people of God to action and that everything that's said should be tested by people. Okay? Um, This is, I think, honestly, that all of us have have probably at some point in time um, had something like this happen to us. Where we've had, some, and what I mean is, I don't mean somebody coming up and saying, hey, brother, sister, thus saith the Lord, I've got a word for you. Whenever somebody starts a conversation like that, it should be a red flag. Okay? That's not the way it happens. But maybe somebody shared something in your life that's been timely. Maybe you've received a text message or a phone call at a time that greatly encouraged you and was just exactly what you needed to hear in that moment. I would argue that that has a prophetic element to it, and that's part of what. Paul is talking about here is about this nowness to the message that stirs us to action or to or to encouragement. And then the fourth category is people, and this would just be the general cessationist camp, what's called the cessationist camp, is that people who believe that all prophecy was absolutely on par with Scripture and therefore prophecy does not exist today because the canon of Scripture is closed. Okay? Um, a lot of good guys in that in that camp as well, but again, I think as you study it, just very quickly, that this is a gift that still exists um, and is at work, but we should test everything by the authority of Scripture. Now, very quickly, I'm not going to spend as much time on the rest of these. We're just going to run through them. Okay, if, but notice how he says it then after prophecy. He says, if service in our serving, 
the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. Why does he speak this way? Doesn't it seem repetitive? Like why? The one who teaches in his teaching, exhorts in his exhortation, contributes, or I'm sorry, who exhorts in his exhortation. Like, here's the point. Get her done. <laughs> That's the point. If you, if you have, think you have a gift of teaching, you know what you need to do? You need to teach. If you have a gift of serving, you know what you need to do? You need to serve. If you have a gift, of, a gift of exhortation, which is the idea, again, of coming alongside, putting your arm around somebody, encouraging them, stirring them on, giving them hope when they're kind of down, you know what you need to do? You need to exhort. You need to do that. The way you learn how to use your gifts and what your gifts are is by getting it done, folks. It's by getting in proximity to God's people, latching hold of the gifts that are in others, but also letting them latch hold of the gifts that are in you. And working it out for the glory of God. The one who contributes or the one who gives with generosity. Okay? God doesn't want you giving just of your time, of your resources, or of your money, but doing it grumpily. He wants you to do it with generosity, with joy. The one who leads with zeal, leadership is a gift. Again, and I, and I, just as, as a way of side note here, again, understand this correctly, frame it correctly. Are there just some people who serve and others don't? No, all of us serve. But certain people are especially gifted at it. Does, is everybody to be able to teach? Absolutely. But some people have a special gifting in it. Can everybody exhort, encourage? Absolutely. But some are more gifted in it. Should everybody give? Absolutely. But some are more gifted with it. Also, should everybody be leading in some aspect in their life? Absolutely. But some are especially gifted in it. Do it with zeal, with passion. Don't do it half-heartedly. We don't need half-hearted leadership. We need leadership that is encouraged and that goes forward. And lastly, those who do acts of mercy. People with a special measure of patience that also see the people that are hurting and they run to them with their ointment and with their salve, with their medical kit to help them and to care for them and to help bring healing, not to do it with bitterness, not to do it with cynicism. Have you ever been around a, <laughs> maybe a doctor or a nurse who comes in to care for you, and I don't know, maybe you're like the 27th one that day that they've had, that, they have, that they've had to give a shot to or something, and by the end they're just like, you know, breaking out the little alcohol pad, and they just kind of stay, you know, it's not the, maybe not the best bedside manner, that's not how we show acts of mercy. We're to do it with cheerfulness, not with just exhaustion. And so if you're exhausted, you need to come back and rest in the Savior. Anyway, worship team, you can come up, and we'll, and we'll close. This is really, 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 really practical, folks. And it's really, really, really important. In fact, I want to argue that, I don't want to say it's more than, but this passage is just as important as Romans 8. It's just as important as Romans 3. So I just want to ask you this morning as we close some of the same things I've asked a lot this morning. I acknowledge it, but I'm going to do it one more time. Have you grown apathetic towards the church? Have you become lazy and sluggish? I don't think this is true here, but in part, I, I, a few years ago, Lifeway Christian Research did a study that said, that found out that people in America, not just 
not just Eastern Christmas Christians that show up to church, but the people that say, I love the church, I'm a disciple, I'm all in. They attend Sunday morning worship 1.6 times a month. Less than half of the Sundays in a month. Um, let's not grow apathetic towards the church. And can we just, like, I know we're just, I know I'm hammering a lot on the same thing this morning, but can we just have some real talk here for a second? Yeah? <laughs> like, let's be honest. How many of you have ever experienced pain or hurt in the church? Raise your hand. Okay, raise them high. Look around. Look around. Look at me. I love you. I'm not minimizing it. Whatever your hurt is. But just by way of that, you're not the only one. The Bible says no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. I will truly empathize with you in your hurt and in your pain, especially pain that you've experienced within the church because there ain't no pain like church pain. Amen? It's a special kind of pain. And it hurts and it stings. But dear friend or dear sister, I truly say this in love, if you can hear it this morning. Because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done. Get over it and get on with it. Okay? We're all in the same boat. Let's get over it and let's get on with it. And let's put our hand back to the task of building relationships for the glory of Christ that his presence might dwell among us in a way that changes not only us, but a watching world. Let's pray. Father, thanks for today. We love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for calling us to something very real. Thank you for calling us to transformation. Thank you for calling us to have renewed minds. We thank you that you've not made it a mystery as in regards to what our minds are to be renewed on. Lord, I just pray this morning that you would truly give us an extra measure of grace to receive what we talked about here this morning. But Father, I'm sure almost all of us, if we've been in church for a while, have experienced pain and hurt within the church. Father, I pray that right now you'd give us a fresh vision of just the cross of Jesus Christ and all that he hung on that cross to do to take all our sin, all our pain, all the punishment that we deserved and all the punishment that our brother and sister deserved was put on him on that cross. So Lord, please help us to show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control to one another by the power of your spirit. And Lord, please, please change us. Change us from the inside out that we might live lives of continual worship. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys stand with me.